he, um, he came here, uh, Justin Pines, his wife Tali, they came here for a few months in the summer, a number of years ago, and they asked if he could sit in on, uh, you know, Kaitz Mananoraita. And so he did, you know, young man, married, whatever, um, awesome guy, and really it was just uh, an honor to learn Torah with him. And we kind of stayed in touch. And he recently sent a small donation and asked if we could dedicate a Thursday night parsha. Dafka wanted a Thursday night parsha in Cholinchir to be uh, dedicated in memory um, of a fellow named Murray Pantirer, um, who was the sole Holocaust survivor of a family of nine from Krakow. He was saved by Oscar Schindler when he was placed on Schindler's list. Um, and with no money and no knowledge of English, he became a successful real estate developer who honored Schindler's deeds and named over 20, 25 streets in New Jersey after him. He eagerly supported Holocaust awareness through charity and public speaking. He was a founding member of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington and was appointed to the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum Council by both President Reagan and President Bush. And he was blessed to see his story told on the big screen through Steven Spielberg's Schindler's List and to own property in the state of Israel, and to live to see, to live to see his eldest great-granddaughter attend Jewish day school. It's actually a schus to, uh, to dedicate a shir on Matzah Yom HaShoah in memory of a Holocaust survivor. I did not know him, um, but we're going to... Uh, I didn't get a Hebrew name. I tried to get one. Uh, so we're going to uh, dedicate this to the Ilu Nishama of Murray Pantirer. Um, so I want to tell you about a postcard exhibit I saw... Uh, years ago in Yad Vashem. Um, did anybody here manage to get to the art exhibit in Yad Vashem? Anybody see that? Yeah, a few of you? Yeah. Powerful? Yeah. So I don't know if this is still there, but I remember years ago when I saw this, very powerful. Um, and Rav Yitzchak tells about this uh, uh, story. It was a family that um, lived in Poland. And the brother... One of the brothers of this family, um, I don't know if he just saw what was coming or he was just a Zionist, but he made Aliyah to Israel um, in the 1930s. And um, his brother stayed behind, his brother stayed in, in, in Poland. And the first postcard in this display is um, a postcard that the brother who's in Poland writes to his brother and sister-in-law in Israel. Because it was Chanyo, their son's first day in first grade. Now, going to Kita Aleph to first grade is a big deal. Ask any family in Islam. I'm sure it's the same way in America. You know, the, the kid gets his first knapsack and he's all excited. You know, those are the days when you can't wait to get up in the morning and go to school, right? How long that lasts depends on your teachers. But in first grade, you're excited to go to the school. Certainly first day. And they took a photo of him and they sent a photo to Israel. They wrote a whole postcard. It's beautiful, right? The next postcard on display, you got to remember back then, there's no social media, there's no phones, there's no... This is the only way people talk. Like when I was a kid, that's how I talked to my grandparents. I wrote them an aerogram and they would send me back a letter. That's just, you know... So relationships were based on these things. The second postcard was sent in uh, September of 1939. And they were asking, they were trying to get permission to leave Poland for Palestine. Now, unfortunately, this was after Kristallnacht. And by this time, the British uh, mandate who was controlling Palestine realized that there were a lot of Jews that want to come here. And they had a vested interest in not allowing that to happen because they were trying to get in good with the Arabs because of oil. I'm oversimplifying a complex story. So they passed something called the White Paper. And the White Paper severely limited immigration 
to all areas of Palestine and the British Commonwealth. Dafka, when the Jews most needed a place to go. Um, it would not be difficult to make a case for saying that the British Empire was complicit in the Holocaust to an extreme degree. Because if the Jews had had a place to go, the Germans would have let, let them out. Originally, they were not trying to destroy all the Jews. They just wanted a, a, a Juden-free Europe. So they had nowhere to go, so he didn't get in. Three months later, there's another postcard that he gets, and it's on the display. And this time, it basically says we've been moved to the ghetto, but we're all okay. It doesn't say much. Maybe it doesn't say much because they don't really want to know their relatives to know how bad things are. Maybe they understood that the censors are looking at this and it won't get through. The third is sent from Majdanek. In Majdanek, he says, we've arrived in Majdanek, the work camp, and Chenyo and I are okay. There's no wall anymore. There's no mention of his, of his wife. There's no mention of his other children. We don't know what happened. You can make the assumptions of what happened. And then there's a last postcard. In the last postcard, this brother sends a postcard to his brother, and he says, I'm working in the post office in Majdanek now, and I'm okay. Now, they would make them sometimes write these postcards so that the outside world would think that everything is fine. And that was the last word he ever got from his brother. And eventually he brought these postcards to Yad Vashem. Right? This story that we shared today, these horrendous experiences that the Jewish people went through, impossible to understand, but raises a very, very difficult question. And it's a question that you can try to sweep under the rug, but it comes back to bite you. Where is God in this whole story? Has God allowed this to happen? You know? I told you once that my cousin, um, Danny, whose son Benji was killed, we'll probably talk about him next week, in the Second Lebanon War. He was a commander in Egoz. And he used to come here to speak to the Oraita guys. And I remember mentioning this in one of the shirim. And, uh, you know, he always tell... Uh, Benji's story sort of briefly and uh, very circumspect he's very English you know not a lot of drama not a lot of and for me it's always very powerful because I knew Benji but I'm not sure for the guy sitting that that part of the story is so powerful like to hear about a story who went and he three weeks after his wedding but then at the end he always you know opens up the floor and asks the guys if anybody has any questions and he always says the same thing you know I'm sure that you're going to be nervous about asking questions, but understand that there isn't a question you can ask that I haven't been asked. And you don't get this opportunity that often to meet somebody who lost a son. So feel free to ask questions. And I told you, I remember one year, one of the boys asked him, I think it was the third year of a right, one of the boys asked him, did it affect your faith? And the whole base minister was quiet. You could hear a pin drop. Everybody was leaning forward to hear what's he going to say. And I was particularly invested in this because I'd never had the guts to ask him that question. He's a Frumayid. And his answer came right away without even thinking, not at all. So everybody's like, how could you, didn't affect your faith like you're so... 
He said, look, either the world has purpose or the world is random. He said, I feel for the people who go through an experience like this and think it's all random. The idea that my son would die randomly is beyond my comprehension. He says, if you have emunah, then you have emunah. Faith isn't about what happens to you. Faith is, is, is a reality that you live in. Hashem has a bigger picture. We can't understand what Hashem does. Why should this be any different from anything else or from the Holocaust? But how do you deal with that? Like, because if he's right, and if it's all part of a plan, then this is planned. Then it's part of the plan that, that, that one and a half million children will, will be butchered. It's part of the plan that that woman's baby that we spoke about today will be left in an apartment while her mother is, is taken off on a transport to Treblinka. How could there be a plan? And on a personal level, I cannot count anymore the number of times that I have had to go to a shiva in this country in some moment of tragedy. The army, a car accident, whatever it is. And a shiva with a mishpacha shakula where a boy was killed in the army is a whole different type of shiva. There's a, there's a, there's a heaviness that lingers that's different from a normal shiva. Normal shiva, I'm not saying a shiva is ever easy and I'm blessed never to have sat shiva, but I told you I went to a, a shiva this week of a woman whose son uh, Yitzhak Isaac is a friend of mine, lives on my block. Um, he's 70 years old. His mother was 96. She was part of the battle to build the state of Israel. Um, they fought in the battle of uh, Mishmari Arden, which is the other six-day war that nobody knows about. Maybe I'll tell you about that next week. Unbelievable story. And he was starting to share with me the story of his father and who he was and what he did. And I just blew my mind that I had known this fellow. He actually passed away a number of years ago. And, and I just never thought to ask him all these questions. And, and Yitzchak was not... He was smiling at certain points, and it was an, an, an animated conversation because a person lives to 96 years old. It's not a tragedy. It's, there's a mourning for, for the loss of a life that's been around so long, but it's not, it's not tragedy. When you go to a shiva where a person's 18 years old, 19, 20, and he's going to be 19 or 20 forever, and he'll never have children, and he'll never have grandchildren, There's an unasked question. How does this happen? And the biggest question you always have when you go to a shiva like that is, what do you say? What do you say to a person? What do you say to a person who, who just buried his son? That's unnatural. It'll be all right. It's not going to be all right. Yetov, it's not going to be good. Very difficult. So if you go back in time, and you could ask any rabbi in Jewish history, what do you say to a person? when he loses a son in battle or otherwise in tragedy, who would you ask? Who would you ask? The Rambam. Okay. I got a bigger one than the Rambam. Who would you ask? Oh, if Rav Hanan heard you say that he was bigger than the Rambam, you'd be in a lot of trouble. Pardon? Aaron and Moshe. That's this week's Parsha. Listen to this story. Not difficult. We're in Parshat Shmini. 
And this is the eighth day of the Shemoni Yemei Miluim. The days where Moshe is teaching Aaron and his sons, Nadav Naviu El Tamar, to put together the Mishkan, the tabernacle, to take it apart. They finally finished building it. It's very exciting. Seven days, Moshe Rabbeinu is the Kohen Gadol. And he's teaching them how to run a Mishkan. And they offer up the sacrifices, and they do the incense, everything, so they don't know what to do. And the eighth day, they put the Mishkan together, and Moshe takes a step back. And Aaron becomes Kohen Gadol. This is an amazing day. This is the first time in history, there will never be a day like this. There will never be, it's like your first Shabbos in the old city in Araita. You will have many Shabbos, but you're never going to have that first one again. There's something about that Shabbos. Even with all the quarantines and everything. Right? There's certain things, you know, that you'll just never have again. The first date with the girl you end up marrying, you never forget that date. This is the first moment the Jewish people are going to have a Mishkan, which is the predecessors of the base of Mikdash, the tabernacle, the temple. This is the first day we have Kohanim. There's no such thing as a Kohen when you don't have a Mishkan. There's no need for them. So now we're going to have a Kohen Gadol, first Kohen Gadol in history. Aaron is about to be, he's like the George Washington of the Jewish people. <coughs> By the way, what a beautiful verse. Vayavo. What's the obvious question? He should say Vayavo. He should say they came. Why does he say he came, Moshe and Aaron, into the tent of meeting? Tell me an answer based on a different pasuk with the same question. Can anybody think of what I'm talking about? Vayichan Shem Yisrael. The Jewish people in camp, it doesn't say Vayachanu and they in camp, it says he in camp. What does Rashi say? Every kid learns this Rashi. When the, when, the, when, the, when the plural group is described as an individual, it's because they're one. Moshe and Aaron here are one. Why is that important? Because Moshe is about to be passed over. He has been the leader till now. And the Kohen Gadol is about to be appointed, and it's not him. And if you assume that Moshe and Aaron understand and they're Nevi'im and they see what's coming, that also means that Aaron's children are going to be the next Kohen Gadol's. Moshe's are not. Right? There's a tam, there's a, uh, a cantillation. Right? The tunes by which we read the Pesukim in the Torah, called the Shalshelet. Right? That Shalshelet appears four times in the Torah. Three times in the book of Breshit, and once in Sefer Vayikra. I think I mentioned this once in a parashash here. In, in the book of Breshit, it appears when Lot is hesitating to leave Stum, Vayitma Mea. Right? Vayitma He's pausing because he doesn't want to leave. He knows he's supposed to leave, but he doesn't want to leave. Where else does it appear? When Eliezer the Eved is tasked by Avram to find the bride for his son Yitzchak, right? He again has this shalshalet because he doesn't really want to find, at least that's what uh, some of Farshim say. Rabbi Sachs actually has a magnificent article. You read the article? Magnificent article by Rabbi Sachs on this topic. He's hoping that he won't find a bride. He creates this crazy test because then his daughter will be part of the house of Abraham. And the third famous example... Yosef, right? People miss that part. Potiphar was trying to seduce Yosef, and Yosef says no, 
But if you look at the Tam, Vayema'en, <coughs> he refrains, he resists, it's he's struggling with this. You're all alone, Yaakov's nowhere to be found, and Potiphar's wife's a babe. And he's struggling with this. Where is the fourth? By the way, there's a good trivia question. In which yeshiva does the Rosh Yeshiva say that Potiphar's wife, Potiphar's wife was a babe? Only a right that. But okay, right? I'm going to go again. Okay. That's okay, right? So, 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 by the way, what was Potiphar's wife, Big Schuss? What was her big merit? Despite uh, being a problematic personality, she has a daughter named Osnat. And Osnat becomes the wife of Yosef. And they have two children, Menashe and Ephraim, who are the only children of that generation who become tribes. So don't put down Potiphar's wife. She's in the Torah, we're not. But okay. Where is the only other, as far as I know, where is the, shh, where is the, that's straight out of Revicta Nevitzel. Where is the only other place we find a Shalshelet? When Moshe Rabbeinu, Vayishchat, offers up sacrifice, right? It's the last sacrifice of the Shemoni Mamiluim before he's going to give it over to Aaron. Because this is a struggle. And he's human. So the fact that it says Vayavo, that they came together, is magnificent. Right? They were one. There was no jealousy here. Right? When Moshe comes down to Mitzrayim, and he's at the burning bush, and he's debating with God, and he says, you know, you should send someone else. Who does he say? Send the person that you normally send. I've been in Midian for 40 years. Who's he talking about? Aaron. What does Akash Baruch tell him? He says, When Aaron sees that you're coming down, he's going to come out and he's going to rejoice in his heart. Only Hashem could know that a person's joy is in his heart. This, this is an amazing brotherhood. And they bless the people. Now you've got to understand what's going on here. The Jewish people get out of Egypt. They're being told they're going to a promised land. Then the Egyptians are going to wipe them out. Shem says, don't worry. Watch what Hashem does for you. You can just be quiet. God's got your back. And the entire Egyptian army wiped out. Party time. Then Amalek comes. They go to war. They win that battle. Party time. Then they get the bitter water, but it turns sweet. Party time. Unbelievable. Then they get to Arsinai and they see sound. And they experience Hashem on a personal level. I remember once there was an Araita boy. I don't remember exactly who it is, but I won't mention his name in case he ever hears this. I don't want to get in trouble. And um, I was coming downstairs and Rabbi Aaron was finishing one of his classes. And this boy was coming out of Rabbi Aaron's class, you know, God consciousness. And he looks at me and he says, oh my God, God exists. And he had this big grin on his face. This boy had been tortured by like, how do I know God exists? Does God know exists? Whatever, Rav Cook, Rav And the penny finally dropped. Hashem created the world. Can't make this stuff up. <clears throat> There's a joy that you experience when you come to a knowledge like that. So the Jewish people are, are, are on top of the world. And then six weeks later, Chet Egel, destruction, embarrassment, 
shame. And you know what the most interesting is? From that day, from Shivas Arbatamuz until this day, Rosh Chodesh Nisan, the Jews, according to Rashi, are given a mitzvah to build a mishkan, right? The beginning of Parsha Vayakel. I think we mentioned this in the Parsha. Vayakel Moshe, Rashi says there, Mimacharat Yom HaKippurim, it was the day after Yom Kippur. After the whole thing of Chet goes over and they finally get the second tablets and they're forgiven, Hashem says, you've got to build a mishkan. Right? But Hashem never speaks to the Jewish people. They are incommunicado. Right? Moshe speaks to the Jewish people. There's no sign. There's no symbol. They have no... They've been getting, you know, seas splitting and plagues. And now, after six months, they've built the mishkan. And there's going to be a Kohen Garu. And the glory of God appears to the entire people, whatever that means. And a fire comes from before Hashem. And it consumes the, the offerings on the altar. And the people see this. And they experience renah which is a high level of joy. And they fall on their faces. Now I want you to understand what's going on here. Because in order to understand what comes next, you need to understand the context here. The Medrash says, imagine that a guy, I'm elaborating, imagine a guy gets married. And he marries the love of his life. And then he messes up. But he doesn't just mess up. He messes up on his honeymoon. They go on their honeymoon and he sees a waitress, and the next thing you know, it's a mess, and the wife comes back, and they're only married a week, and, and, and she finds him, and it's disaster. And she screams, and she throws, and she, things get thrown, and, and, and he gets a black eye, and she grabs her things and runs out of the hotel room. And he suddenly sits on the edge of the bed, and he suddenly realizes what he just did. For a moment of shtus, of nonsense, he gave up the love of his life. So he grabs all the stuff and throws it into some bags and he gets to the airport, but he gets there and the flight's left. So he flies back to, I don't know, New York, and, and, and he can't find her. And he calls everybody and finally he finds out that she's staying in a parent's house. But her parents won't let him talk to her. They're so angry. He can't talk to her. He doesn't know what to do. He tries sending a letter as he tries. So he goes to a florist and he buys a bouquet of white roses. And he puts the white roses on the doorstep. She won't answer the door. And he walks away and he's broken. And the next day, he gets another bouquet of white roses and he walks down the path to the house and he sees the white bouquet of roses from the day before and they're in the garbage. And his heart is broken. But he won't give up. And every day he goes back to this house and he puts another white bouquet of roses on the front step and every day he sees yesterday's in the garbage but he won't give up. And the weeks go by and months go by. And one day, six months later, it's Rosh Chodesh Nisan. And he comes to the house and he suddenly realizes the garbage is empty. And he walks up to the house and he looks through the window. And there on the table, in a beautiful vase, is a bouquet of white roses and his heart soars. That's what the Jewish people experience. There are no words to this type of experience. Fayaronu is a type of joy that is so powerful it's beyond words. When somebody comes to you on your wedding day and says, how's it going? You don't even know how to answer that question. When your first child is born healthy, mind-boggling. That's Fayaronu. They fall on the face because there's no words. The joy is that high. 
This is one of the highest moments in Jewish history. It will never come back. First moment in a Mishkan. First moment with a Kohen Gadol. Kodesh Baruch Hu is back. Not clear what this is. Nadav and Aviyu, by the way, who are Nadav and Aviyu? Just so you understand the enormity of the tragedy. If you look in Perak Havdalad and Shemot, right? When Matan Torah occurs, Moshe is up on the mountain. Where's Yeshua? He's halfway up the mountain, right? Where are the Jewish people? They're 2,000 yards away, 2,000 amad away at the foot of the mountain. Where does Canaan? This Canaan are actually at the foot of the mountain. Who is in between Yoshua and this Canaan? Nadav and Aviyu. Nadav and Aviyu, you can look at it, it's Beferish in the Pasuk. Nadav and Aviyu are the future leaders of the Jewish people. This is an enormous tragedy. It's not clear what they did. In fact, the Mepharshim are equally divided. You can find Mepharshim who, who say they did an amazing thing. Like, for example, Rav Shimshon Fal Hirsch says that their zeal, their joy was so great they couldn't contain themselves. They were so excited, they just, they just had to do more. <clears throat> My mother uh, once uh, told me, she told me an amazing story, and I, to this day, have such a karzatov to Dr. Lichtenstein, uh, Lichtenstein's wife, for telling my mother this story. Um, I don't honestly remember this, um, but apparently, um, every year on Purim, we would go to Rav Lichtenstein's house first, and then we would go to Rav Amital's house. Now, there weren't 600 people there. I just thought that's what Yeshiva guys do. Only years later, I understand there were like 40, 30 of us. Not everybody went, because it was Purim, and maybe people couldn't go, or people are busy, or they go to their families. But that was just a tradition. We all, you know... And um, you would go to Rav Lichtenstein first because Rav Lichtenstein was very, you know, he was brisk. Like somebody would start a niggin and we would kind of dance in a circle, you know, the brisker way, like, you know, not a lot of emotion going on, right? <laughs> and, and then we would go to, and Rav Lichtenstein didn't get drunk. I only once saw him a little tipsy. I suspect some students were at play there. And um, he would like, you know, uh, right, that's how it went. And you were very sober and you were very straight. And, you know, if it would have ended there, it would have been like... Uh, but then we would go to Ravamital's house. Now, Ravamital uh, knew how to... Uh, he had a whole different way of celebrating Purim. And he would, uh, he would drink. And he would encourage the guys to drink. And uh, he, would, he would just go on. He would tell stories and he would give shiurim. It was unbelievable. Right? Um, so for Purim Day, Ravamital... Like there was a reason that we went first to Vlachensin's house. Now, one year I came to Vlachensin's house... And I felt that we should imbibe the spirit of the day. So I had a little suda before I got to the suda, And I was quite prepared for Purim. And um, one of the things that happens when you get a little loaded is your inhibitions drop out. And I just remember that I ended up on a bus. I'm still not quite sure how I got to the bus. And, um, and the rest of it was hazy. I eventually got back to Gush. And a few days later, uh, no... A few months later, um, somehow uh, my parents went to a gush dinner, and the Lichtensteins were there. And my mother saw, my, my, Dr. Lichtenstein saw my mother. And I don't know how he, she even realized, uh, that's a whole other question, but uh, she said, oh, huh, your son had a lot of fun with us on Purim. And my mother said, okay, and so she told her the story. And the next time I spoke to my mother on the phone, she said, I heard you had a great Purim. 
I said, yeah, it was a great program. She said, apparently you had a great time at the Lichtensteins. I said, huh? <laughs> apparently I started giving it to our Torah in the circle because, like, it's Purim. And according to Dr. Lichtenstein, I went on for 45 minutes. <laughs> Nobody could shut me up. They couldn't shut me up. You know, that's Vayaronu. Like, the joy was so great. So if Shimshon her says, Nadav and Aviyu, they were so excited... You ever see the guy, you know, sort of at the part, and he just goes a little too far because he's so happy, and just want to, I guess that was me, right? So, so they're so excited, they want to do more for HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Now, by the way, if Shem Shufal Hirsch says, what was their hate? The joy of the Jewish people should be your joy. You shouldn't need to have more joy. In fact, he suggests this is a very critical idea, because in Egypt, the Kohen was above the people. The people served the priest. Judaism says the priests are meant to serve the people. It's a completely different idea. But, but, but you know, some of Farshim say that they were drunk. Some of Farshim say they were more Allah Habitney Rabbos. Some of Farshim say it's, it, there are 14 different opinions that I've been able to find on what this hate was. Whenever you find that many different opinions on what the hate is, it's a surefire sign that we're not really sure. Something goes wrong. And it's more difficult when you don't know what it is because you can't sort of begin to get your head around what, what just happened. Now pay attention to the Pesukim here. First it says, What did it say previously? When they offer up the offerings on the Mizbeach and Moshe and Aaron are coming out of the... It says, It's the same Pesukim. And that gives support to those who say that something powerful, something meaningful, something good was. And they die before Akashbar. By the way, just as an aside, the image of a fire coming from heaven is completely a mistake if you study the Gemara. The fire didn't come from heaven, the fire came from the Mizbech Akhtaret. Went this way, not that way, but okay. And they die. So you understand, this is an unbelievable tragedy. This isn't like a guy who, you know, passes away in his sleep in the hospital. You know, this is, uh, uh, this, this is David, this is John Kennedy, you know, and, and, and JFK was assassinated. And, and then they realized that they made a mistake and he's alive. And, and they resuscitate him and they bring him back to the White House and they re-inaugurate him and Lyndon Johnson steps down. And it's unbelievable. And on that day... I mean, I don't know if you know how the American people felt about John F. Kennedy after he died. He was like, God. And, and his son, who you may remember from the photos if you've ever studied this story, little uh, John Jr. Is, is saluting in the coffin. That son is struck down. This is an unbelievable tragedy. Now comes the most powerful two words in this entire story. Vayomer Moshe El So Moshe says, down, think about this. Aaron is confronted with this incredible tragedy. And Moshe, his brother, is there. And he says to him, so here's my opportunity. I'm finally going to find out, what do you say to a person who's just suffered such a tragedy? And I'm going to discover it from Moshe Rabbeinu. You couldn't pick a better educational opportunity. So what does Moshe Rabbeinu say? Who asher diber Hashem lemor b'krovaya kadesh? That's when Hashem says, those who are close to me, I'll become sanctified. And through this, I will become honored among the people. In other words, look, they had to die, but the Jewish people learned a good lesson. This is what Moshe Rabbeinu has to, this is the big, 
you hire this person as a pulpit rabbi? This is it. I want you to know. This is such a crazy thing to say. So difficult to understand that Aaron is speechless. Vayidom Aaron. And Aaron, Dmama, Aaron remains silent. Chazal talk about this. You know? There are some who suggest this is the basis for the fact that you're not Menachem a person in, 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 his, in, his, in, his, in his pain. You have to wait. You don't say Amokim Menachem when a person just lost a loved one. You wait till they're sitting Shiva, till after the burial. So putting aside why Moshe and how and what's going on, how do you... So if the story ended here, I would be devastated. That this is what the Torah has to tell them, how to deal with tragedy, but the story doesn't end here. There is a fascinating sequel to this story. And this sequel is going to help us unlock this question, and I believe, at least according to Salvechik, provide a response. Okay? Now what happens next is that the show has to go on. There is not going to be another day when you can dedicate the Mishkan. And we know that when it comes to Reb Yisrael and Am Yisrael, Am Yisrael comes first. Right? You know, if it's Erev Sukkot, it breaks the Shiva, because the joy of the Jewish people takes precedence over your personal pain. As difficult as that may be. So Moshe tells them, Elazar v'itamar, banav hanotarim, the remaining sons, they will always now be the remaining sons. Life has changed forever. And they have to keep it going. They have to offer up the korbanot. And they have to do everything they're supposed to do because the Jewish people need them to be Kohen. And there are some halachot that we learn here today. And then you get to the end of this story. Okay? So what's the end of the story? This is the end of Perak Yud in Parsha Shemini, in our Parsha. Ve'etzir is a few psukim. And this is going to unlock the whole thing. By the way, I should point out that this idea I first heard in an article that uh, Dr. Baruch Sturman, a friend of mine who uh, really is one of the key players in the Tchelet world, um, wrote... Um, and this idea really comes from him. It comes from Salvechuk, but I first heard of it from him. So now, part of the ritual of the eighth day, of the Chanukah, the dedication of the Mishkan, is you're supposed to offer up a korban chatas. Now, when you offer up a korban chatas, you're supposed to offer it up, and the Kohanim actually eat. You don't burn the whole chatas. You don't burn the whole sin offering, Right? The Kohanim have to eat it. In fact, the Gemara in Yoma says that the, when the, 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 the process of bringing a Korban Chatas, the forgiveness or the atonement that it achieves, is only done when the Kohanim actually eat from the Korban. And that's a whole idea that, you know, the physical channel towards Hashem or whatever it is. If the Kohanim, if the Kohanim don't eat it, then the Korban didn't work. It, it, you have to bring another card. It's a whole story. So Moshe told them what they have to do. And here they burnt the whole thing like a Korban Ola. You're not supposed to do that. So Moshe gets angry. This is a chatas. It's not an ola. Why didn't you eat the korban chatas like you're supposed to? Right. By the way, this is the first proof in the Torah that the vegetarians, sorry guys, got to eat the meat. But okay, right? <laughs> This is how you gain forgiveness for the Jewish people before Hashem, whatever it might be. It wasn't done right. Can you imagine? These two boys have just lost their brothers. Aaron lost his sons. And, and they burnt the chatas and they're doing everything they're supposed to do. They're the and the But they burned it. They didn't do it. So Moshe starts yelling at them, Vayiktsof, he gets angry at them. 
This is Moshe Rabbeinu? So finally, Vayedaber Aaron el Moshe. Now finally, Aaron speaks up. And he says to him, they offered up the chatas, the ola. They did everything they're supposed to do. Look what happened to me on this day. You want me to have a party? You want me to have a cholent? Is that really what Hashem wants? Is that good in Hashem's eyes? So Moshe hears. And he says, oh, good point. And then we move on to the next one. Ha! Huh? going on here? <coughs> this is a crazy story. So let me tell you what this is talking about. First of all, it's interesting. There are three korbanot chatat that were offered on this day. One of them is, what's, what's the date of Hanukkah to Mishkan? Anybody remember? Rosh Chodesh Nisan. So what korban chatas do you offer on Rosh Chodesh? Korban chatas l'ashem. So that's one korban chatat. One of the offerings is the Rosh Chodesh offering. Every month they're going to offering. This just happens to be the first. There's a second carbon chatas that's offered. And just to give you a hint, there are going to be 12 of them offered. Anybody know what I'm talking about? The carbonate of the Nisim, right? When do we read of the carbonate of the Nisim? Pardon? We read it in Baminbar and? And? And Hanukkah, correct, right? Okay? Stark, right? So who was the Nasi of the first day, right? For 12 consecutive days, they're going to offer up identical korbanot. Whenever you get to that parsha, everybody always asks, how come we repeat all the korbanot? And there are all sorts of answers that are given, right? Who is the first korban on Rosh Chodesh Nisan? Nachshon bin Aminadav, Shevet Yehuda. First tribe, royalty, okay. That's the second chatas. And then there's the third chatas. And this third chatas, this third sin offering is the offering that was offered for Hanukkah Mishkan. This is a once-in-history offering. It will never be offered again. There will never be another Hanukkah Mishkan. And this chatat is offered up because of the dedication of the Mishkan. So the question now is, which carbon chatas are we talking about? Are we talking about the carbon for Rosh Chodesh? Are we talking about the carbon for Nachshon Min Aminadav for the Nasi? Or are we talking about the carbon of, of, of Hanukkah Mishkan? Most of them, for Shem say, we're talking about the carbon of Rosh Chodesh. Right? This is a regular carbon. It's part of the, you know, what you have to do when you didn't do it right. And it's important. And there's a svara to say that. But the Rajbam says something different. And so does Shadal, Lutzato. Right? The Rajbam alludes to this. The Rajbam, by the way, was one of the grandchildren of Rashi. Interesting commentary. We're not going to talk about him right now. Chachamim Pirshu B'Seir Shal Rosh Chodesh. Right? Chacham say this is the Seir of Rosh Chodesh. Aval, Seir Eidav, Seir Nachshon Nechalu. Right? But that the, the Seir of Nachshon and the Seir that was a once in a time for the Chanukah Mishkan, those were actually eaten. Those were done right, but this one was done wrong. Now, it could be that what the Rajbam is saying is, uh, this doesn't make a lot of sense. Right? So Shadal says, no, no, no. We're not talking about the Seir of Rosh Chodesh. We're talking about the Seir that was a once-in-a-lifetime carbon. And Aaron says, how can I offer this carbon on this day? Now, in order to understand this, there's one more detail that I have to share with you. There's an interesting dichotomy of texts in the Gemara. How do you deal with tragedy? There's a Gemara in Brachos and Dafhei. Everybody knows this Gemara. 
Yisurin over in Aladam, if a person goes through travail, anybody? You should go through your actions like a book. So, God forbid, you know, where's Jeremy Lin's, Lin, Linside? Is he here? Pardon? Is he here? No. So, yeah, no, no, no. Chasov, I'm not, uh, I was just going to use him as an example, but okay. So, I went to the hospital to visit uh, Jeremy. And I should say to him when I walk in, listen, you know, this is obviously serious. Like, I mean, you know, you can't talk properly for six weeks. You're obviously a bum. You're a chote. You're a poshaya. And you need to do some work. <laughs> so that's a horrible thing to say. But that's what the Gemara says. That's what the Gemara says. Right? Effie Bluestone is the longest student in a right to history in quarantine. I should say to him, you're obviously a bum. Hashem says you don't belong in the midst. That's crazy. But that's what the Gemara says. <coughs> right? Gemarin Shabbos and Daphne Nunhei. Amar of Ami, ein mita below chait, fein yisurin below avon. There is no death without iniquity, and there is no suffering without transgression. If you're suffering, you're doing something wrong. Something's off balance. So, I got a great idea, because I want to teach Torah. I'm going to go to the pediatric oncology ward. I'm going to find all the parents whose kids are suffering from cancer. And I'm going to say to them, obviously the problem is, because he's not responding, he's five years old, you are chotim. And you have to fix yourself up, because then he'll... So that's ridiculous. So fortunately, there's another Gemara. And this Gemara is my cut. And I'm picking three. I could, there are more sources, but... This is Gemara in cut in Chavchetam and Aleph. Right? I'm a Rava. No slouch, Rava. Chaye bani mazoni. A person's livelihood, your children, whether you have parnasa, mazoni, right? All these things. Do you get sick? All the things of whether you suffer or not. Lo bizchuta talia milta. Are not dependent on merit. Ela bimazla talia milta. They're dependent on mazal. Okay? In other words, if a person, God forbid, you know, his jaw gets broken, right? It's not that he did anything wrong. It's not schus. It's not that he merited it. It's mazel. It could have happened to anybody. How many guys here have taken a ride on those ridiculous scooters? Anybody else? Right. So, you know, they say you, you shouldn't give musr, right? There's a Gemara in, um, in Erchen and Daftet Zayin that says, the Rabbi Chia says, that we're not allowed to give Torah today. Now that I tell someone off, why? Because I'll tell you, like, right, take the toothpick out from your teeth. In other words, look what you're doing wrong. You'll say to me, take the beam out from between your eyes. Look at you. You're going to tell me, look at you. Right? So it'll create more, more tararat, more hatred, more enmity. Right? So at the very least, we don't pass in that way, but at the very least, don't give musr unless you're sure that you don't need to learn the musr first. Right? I've told you before, even though it's been many years since I smoked a cigarette, I smoked when I was in the army. I don't feel right giving muster to someone not to smoke. I'm the last one to give muster on this topic. I, when I was your age, I was riding a skateboard 40 miles an hour down highways. Right? I was retarded. Right? I was nuts. Right? So, but, but, but it's crazy to do that. Right? But don't think that the reason that he had an injury and you didn't had anything to do with chus. It's all mazel. Right? Now, how do we paskin? How does the Jewish people paskin on this topic? How do we rule? Is it mazel? Or are they yisurin? Is there avam? Am I, am I suffering because they did something wrong? Or is it all mazel? Somebody tell me how we paskin. Prove it to me. 
Where's Yehuda the Madrich? Is he here? No. Pardon? No, no, no. So what did you say to him when he got engaged? He said, Mazel Tov. What you really should do is you should go over to him and you should say, listen, you must be a tzaddik. You found the right girl. That's not an easy thing to do. But we say Mazel Tov. It's Mazel. Don't think you did anything to earn this. It's all Mazel. So which is it? So Rav Soloveitchik has an unbelievable day, and I think this will unlock him, and this will end. It'll unlock this whole story. Soloveitchik says, there are actually two participants to an event of suffering. There is the sufferer, and there is the witness to suffering. Now the person who suffers, his natural inclination is to say, moi, I didn't do anything wrong. You know? So, I have nothing to learn from this. But when you see someone else suffering, says of Soloveitchik, your natural inclination is to say, oh, he must have done something wrong. Because if he did something wrong, then the reason he's suffering is because he did something wrong. And all I have to do is not do anything wrong and I won't suffer. You've just put him in a nice little box. Right? A guy gets married, he gets divorced, he must have messed up. Guy's kid goes off the derech, ah, they must be terrible parents. That's just easy. Right? Says Soloveitchik, we have to do the opposite. When someone else suffers, our job is not to judge them. It's not to give them musr. We're meant to be there for them. But when we suffer, we have an opportunity. Yisurin over and them. Yipashmishamasav. Do a little thinking. There's something to be learned. There's something off balance. There's something we need to fix. Now, this is a dangerous process. Because... To assume that you got it right and you know why Hashem does what Hashem does, that's arrogant. So go through this process and say, I got it, that's dangerous. But go through this process and struggle with it. I want to learn something from this. You can't lose from going through that process. Introspection that leads to change is always going to be good. Says Baruch Sturman, I think that's what's going on in this story. Right? Moshe is the witness to suffering. His job is to say, we don't understand. But Aaron, Aaron says to him, wait a second. We're talking about the chatas that is offered at Chanukat Mishkan. It's a unique offering. Why are we offering a korban chatas today on the day we dedicate the Mishnah? What chait are we trying to fix? Chait Egel. Now the Gemara tells us that the only instance where a Kohen does not eat from the Korban Chatas is when he's Baalei Otochet. Right? If a person is a gambler and somebody's bringing a Chatas for gambling, he can't, he can't eat from that Korban. Only the Kohen knows why he's not eating. Says Aaron, I'm supposed to eat? We're supposed to eat? We're the reason there was a Chet Eagle. Now Moshe's job is to say Chet Eagle happened because it was meant to happen. It was Mazel. Aaron's job is to say, I need to learn something. And I think, on a certain level, that's, that's sort of where I'm at on the question that we started this year with. Our job, especially us in our generation who didn't actually suffer, our job is not to figure that there was a reason for this. It's not to judge. It's not to presume. It's just to be there. The individual who struggles with that pain they have the opportunity to decide what to learn from it. But it's not for us to tell them to do that. And maybe that's what's hidden in this story 
of, of Hanukkah Mishkan and Nadav Neviyu. Something to think about as we enter Parsha Shmini and we go from Yom HaShoah to Yom HaZikaron. Um, there is a certain tendency to arrogance that we have. Look at us. We built a state. Look at our generation. Look at us. We're sitting learning Torah and Yeshiva. You know, we're so great. We're so stark. And then we get back to wherever it is we're getting back to or we encounter whoever we encounter and there's this little, little splinter of arrogance that worms its way into your brain because the Yetzirah is very smart. You know? I think this story is coming as well to tell us be careful with that. Use the opportunities of everything that's around us to learn and to grow but don't make it our business to do that for anybody else. A little food for thought on Parsha Shmini. Okay.